We begin our study today in Jonah chapter 1 with an article that I found. It's from um, a newspaper in Belleville, Illinois. And the title of the article, Illinois Mom Goes on Strike. Michelle Trebeau's kids drove her up a tree, literally. The 36-year-old mother of three climbed up a tree in her yard as part of a work action against her family. After ascending to an eight-foot-by-eight-foot treehouse, Trebeau said she was fed up with the backtalk, whining, and the general lack of appreciation from her children. I wait on them hand and foot. I love them. I'd do anything in the world for them, but they're going to treat me nice, she said. She stayed in the treehouse overnight, but she came down after her children left brownies at the base of the tree. (laughs) Negotiations are underway, she said. Her husband, Sonny, 38, had the children, Rachel, 7, Joseph, 13, and Misty, 15, do some chores in hopes of getting them out of mom's doghouse. But Sonny thinks he knows the real problem. He said there are two teenagers in the house. We've been looking at the life, not of a parent, but of a prophet, shirking his duties, going the opposite direction of what a prophet should be doing. He didn't climb a tree to escape, but he did climb into a boat to escape and went, as the scripture says, to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. But negotiations are underway. Whenever you hear of a dog biting a man, that's not news. But if you ever hear about a man biting a dog, now that's different enough to be news. And so, also, when a man catches a fish, that doesn't make news, but when a fish catches a man, that's big news. And verse 17 draws our attention to that news. We're going to look at that one single monumental verse this morning. It is the greatest fish story ever told. It is such an incredible verse, such an incredible story, that it has been reduced by some to fiction, a Sunday school tale that the young can enjoy. Whenever this verse is read or the story of Jonah is told, a number of words come to many people's minds, words like outlandish, preposterous, uneducated, inconceivable. I just can't swallow this story. It's just too ridiculous, this whole idea of a man inside of a whale. There is a little thing called Sportin' Life's Agnostic Hymn that says, it ain't necessarily so, it ain't necessarily so, what the preacher's liable to teach you just ain't necessarily so. The chorus of that agnostic hymn is, Jonah, he lived in a whale, Jonah, he lived in a whale, he made his home in a fish's abdomen, Jonah lived in a whale. The agnostic hymn, this sort of sums it all up, why we don't believe, Jonah and the whale. Now, before we get into that, I mentioned that negotiations were underway It's important to look at these verses. Look back at verse 1 of the first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. 
from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. Then we go to verse 12. After the sea is fomenting, he, Jonah, said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. I would rather die than go to Nineveh. But, verse 17, that we look at this morning, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Negotiations are underway. He'll go. He'll preach after the negotiations have been successful. But, oh, the pain that he has to go through to get there. Reading the story of Jonah reminds me of an ad that you'll be able to appreciate. It says, lost dog with three legs, blind in left eye, missing right ear, tail broken, recently injured, and answers to the name of Lucky. (laughs) Lucky Jonah has to have his ego broken first, be a few days and nights in the heart of the deep, arm behind the back, And he says, okay, I'll go, when he commissions him again. There are four great lessons in this one single verse. There are more. I've limited it to four. There's the great abduction. That is the story itself at face value. The great confusion. Why so much suffering to get to this point? There is the great anticipation of this verse, since it anticipates the resurrection of Christ. And then there is the great commission that this verse is all about to get him to preach a message. Let's first of all just look at this great abduction, the story at face value of a great fish or a whale, whatever, swallowing a man, him living through the ordeal, getting out when he's vomited up on land and sharing a message. It is this verse principally that has caused many people to say, I'm sorry, I just can't take the Bible seriously. This is ridiculous. This has got to be an allegory, got to be a myth. It's got to be a dream. This is for kids. You can't expect me to believe this. But there are others who have taken it seriously and done some research on it. Rather than just dismissing it, looked into the possibility, could this happen? And there have been many suggestions in research. One suggestion is that this was the white shark, called the Rhinodon typicus, to be specific, that can grow up to 70 feet long, and has been known to swallow men who were later found alive. The Phinaclon shark has swallowed sea cows up to a thousand pounds whole without a broken bone. Others have suggested, no, this sounds like it's a whale. And you might ask, well, why would a whale be in the middle of a storm around a boat like this? Because the habit of the whales is to follow boats who throw garbage over the sides. They feed off of it. And if you look back in verse 5, you see what they are doing. Jonah sent out a great, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. That's verse 4, excuse me. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. It could be that there were whales out in that area because of this. There are two types of whales. First, there are the, it's called the odontocetes, and the second, the mystocetes. Now, it's not my purpose to give you a, a science course, because so many of you could give me a science course. 
But for the sake of this story, we should look at a couple of things. The odontocete, the first type. The blue whale is the typical specimen of this. It can get to be about 100 feet long, weighing 150 tons, but it cannot swallow a man because suspended hanging from its upper jaws are a series of hundreds of plates that act as strainers so that the only food it takes in is small creatures like crustaceans. So that would rule that out. But the second type, the mysticete, its prime specimen that we know of would be the sperm whale or the catadon macrocephalus to be specific in scientific terms. Uh, This creature has been known to swallow unusually large objects whole, including up to 15-foot sharks that have been found within the belly. They have teeth, but the teeth are not for chewing as much as they are for securing prey. They eat anything that moves, and again, they swallow it whole. And uh, everything from fish to sea turtles to seals to penguins to squid to prophets in this case. (laughs) To research this is a pain because there are people who just say, you know what, this isn't even worth the research. This is so ridiculous. But there are others who at least will be open-minded enough to see if it's plausible. We've already seen that it is. Um, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who did research on this, found that if you own a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas that attached to the membership of owning the encyclopedia, you become a member of the Library Research Service of Britannica, which enables you to do further research by requesting it, and they'll send you info back. He and his crew did that regarding uh, Jonah and the whale. Got a four-page report back. I will read you a paragraph, the conclusion. Physiological tests entirely disprove the alleged impossibility of the story. It is shown by study of the structure of the sperm whale and its habits that it is perfectly possible for a man to be swallowed alive and after an interval vomited up again. Also for him to remain alive for two or three days within the whale. One source said, the body's remarkable ability to live on small amounts of oxygen, though normally unconsciously, in cold water is sometimes medically, excuse me, is something medically well established. Also a factor is the whale's frequent surfacing for air. Sir Francis Fox, who lived many years ago, writing of this said, the manager of a whaling station informs us that the sperm whale swallows lumps of food eight foot in diameter And in one of those whales, they actually found the skeleton of a shark 16 feet in length who was swallowed whole. A man by the name of G.H. Henn, resident of Birmingham, England, uh, wrote and said that in his town, they took the carcass of a sperm whale on display. They had it. He and 12 men decided to get inside. And he said, quote, It was equivalent to a fair-sized room. Its throat served as a door. Obviously, it would be quite easy for a whale to swallow a man. As part of the Britannica research, A.J. Wilson was quoted. A.J. Wilson reviewed this and wrote in the Princeton Theological Review, issue number 25, an interesting story about a man named James Bartley. And James Bartley was one of those guys who didn't believe in this story. This is ridiculous fairy tale. But James Bartley was a seaman 
on a whaling ship, a British whaling ship. The ship was called the Star of the East. And the Star of the East and a few of the other vessels were chasing sperm whales, hunting them off the coast of the Falkland Islands. When one of the tails, according to the report, of the, one of these creatures hit the boat, rendering it unstable, one man died by drowning. Bartley was completely missing, assumed dead, drowned. They got a hold of this whale, killed it, bringing it aboard, hoisting it up, and they laid it out on the deck, started cutting its oily flesh for the oil. That was his principal harvest. Took it apart piece by piece. This takes days. But the second or third day, when they had the stomach hoisted up on board, it started moving spasmodically. Spasmodically. One of those two things. (laughs) It moved. (laughs) The captain said to his men, move back, because it could be a shark inside. We've seen this before. They cut inside, and out came Bartley, doubled up in a coma, unconscious but alive. They took him to the captain's quarters for two weeks to nurse him back to health. It wasn't until the third week that he regained consciousness and was able to even act normal. Because of the gastric juices of the whale, his face, neck, and hands were bleached white, looked and felt like old parchment. So uh, keep in mind what it must have looked like to the Ninevites once Jonah came to their town. (laughs) Maybe seeing him, they're ready to listen. He remembered the ordeal and lived to tell his own experience. He said, I remember being thrown overboard. I remember the terrible wishing sound. I remember being conveyed into a smooth conduit, terrible darkness, and the soft, slimy walls around me. He said there was plenty of air to breathe. That is while he was conscious because he became unconscious into a coma. He said it was terribly dark, terribly quiet, and the temperatures were so hot. Imagine the, the moisture and the heat about 104 degrees Fahrenheit, smelling the rancid, half-digested gastric juices of whatever else is in there. All the guys go, cool. (laughs) Could it happen? Scientifically, it could happen. It has happened. It's been documented. But I want to move from that for just a moment. Yes, it could happen. But you know what? Even if we didn't have all that research that has shown that it has happened, we know scientifically. We know it still could happen because of God. And I don't always feel the need, like I have to pander to those who live only in the realm of agnostic empiricism. Okay, well, now I believe it because you proved it scientifically, so this is cool. I don't feel there's always a need to do that to somehow scientifically prove God. I I look at it this way. If mankind can engineer and prepare a trident nuclear submarine, couldn't God prepare any creature he wanted or a submarine if he wanted to? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe that? If you believe that, the rest is easy. It's a pretty good trick. Earth be, there it is. I think he could prepare a whale. If God can't do this miracle, God can't do any miracle. God is rendered now impotent, uh, a victim, imprisoned by his own creation and the laws of creation that he set in order. 
It's not a big deal for God. We look at something and go, wow, that is just like unreal. God goes, this is no big deal. Why? Because God lives at a higher level than we live, in a different realm than we live. My ways, said God, are not your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. So here's puny little man. Can you prove it, God? So it can fit in the narrow canyons of my cranium. And God's ways are above our ways. Example. There are natural laws that are sometimes, shall we say, suspended or overridden by other natural laws. Gravity is a natural law. Easy to prove gravity. Jump off a building. You'll splat if it's tall enough. But if you have an apparatus, you could jump off of a building and fly. You can suspend that law of gravity, or at least control it, by another law, aerodynamics, thrust in some cases. So go to a, a large international airport, and if you can get on the tarmac and look up at a 747. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it is an awesome thing to look at that huge bird, and you think, there's no way that thing can fly. It's huge. It's metal. It holds over 500 people. 6,000 cubic feet for luggage. It can hold up to 45,000 extra pounds of luggage. And if you've flown lately, you know that people use it all up. <laughs> How can it fly? Gravity would say it must remain on the ground. But you have high-velocity jets. You have the dynamic reaction of air against the wings. And you know what? It floats. It goes right up in the air. Jeremiah wrote, Ah, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. By your great power and outstretched arm, there is nothing that is too hard for you. Well, let's move to what I call, in the second point, the great confusion about this verse. Because the verse would bring up a question. At least I would have the question, and I've heard this question voiced from time to time by other believers question is this, why would God have to go put Jonah through such suffering to get him back to do what he wants? I mean, this is extreme. Aren't there other methods that God could use? Why is he punishing Jonah? He's not punishing. He's rescuing Jonah. See, Jonah would die out there alone in that water, thrown overboard. He, he didn't have a chance. The whale is there to protect him. This is room and board. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared. I love that word. God had all the preparations in advance. Room and board. The word literally in Hebrew means appointed, and it's a rescue operation. You go, come on, rescue? In this kind of suffering, confinement, stench, isolation, darkness, this is rescue? This is a favor? I don't know if you ever saw Fiddler on the Roof. But you remember Tavia questions God through a period of suffering. He says, God, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you don't have very many. Maybe Jonah thought that. Uh, this is good thing? Why? Why such suffering? Let's make it practical for us. Not why is there suffering in the world. Why do God's children, who love him and are out to do his stuff, why do we go through such suffering? I'll answer that in the life of Jonah. First of all, this is corrective. This is to get Jonah back on the right path. 
Parents, have you ever spanked your children? Parents spank their children not because they love to inflict punishment, but because they love their child. And to that parent, it is irrelevant what that child thinks of the parent at that time. It's more important to the parent what that child will say of the parent when he's 18, 20 years of age. And he's been put on the right path. And the Bible says in like manner, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he spanks, chastens, to correct us. David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The affliction was corrective. C.S. Lewis said, Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Get your attention like nothing else. Not only is it corrective, suffering is constructive. It's like divine sandpaper. Chisel. Gets off the rough edges. Do you have any rough edges in your life? Are you just smooth all the time? I should ask your spouse that question. Sure. Or your children or parents. We all have rough edges. And if you've ever walked along a seashore and you go to the quiet coves where, where it's real nice and calm, all the rocks are jagged. You want to find the smooth rocks, go out where the surf pounds incessantly against the rocks. And it's that pressure that causes the smoothness. Paul, the apostle, understood this correction, this construction. He talked about a thorn in the flesh that he had, a period of pain, and he said, God allowed it to come into my life to humble me. Lest I be exalted above measure, the pain put me in my place. I remain humble. I asked God three times to take it away. And all God could say to him was, my grace is enough. So he said, I rejoice in my suffering, my pain, my affliction, my physical shortcoming, because it was for that correction and construction. Now, I want to press that a little further with what James said. It's a familiar verse, but let me, as I read this, ask you how many of us really do this. He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When was the last time we did that? All right, trial. Cool. This is great. Pure joy. I'm going through this. You think, guy, did this guy have an unusually euphoric day when he wrote this or what? Well, this is what he says. Consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. One of my favorite authors, Samuel Rutherford, lived in the 1600s in Scotland, wrote a little quip. He said, Why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that maketh deep furrows in my soul? I know that he's no idle husbandman. He purposeth a crop. Those digs of pain in my life, by God, are meant to produce something. A crop, a harvest. You know, if you were to interview the Ninevites, if you were to ask the Ninevites what they thought of this, they would be very happy and glad that Jonah ended up as whale puke. They would. Because it meant their salvation. If God would get his attention by that, for him to come to us with a message that would completely change our world, our community, thank God for that whale. That was the crop. That was the harvest that that suffering produced. So out of great tension and pressure can come something beautiful. 
So consider it pure joy. Ask Theodore Steinway, who put 243 taut strings exerting 40,000 pounds of pressure on an iron frame and called it a grand piano, proving that out of great tension comes beautiful harmony in music. So, corrective and constructive. Third, there is the great anticipation that this verse has within it. This verse looks forward to something. In fact, this is the only verse, this is the only historical event Jesus ever used as an example of his own resurrection. So it makes us, our ears perk up and take notice. Look with me over at Matthew chapter 12 for a moment. Let's see how he frames it. Matthew chapter 12. That is New Testament. First book, 12th chapter. Verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Stop right there. Isn't that odd? Because by now they have seen lots of signs. He has turned water into wine. He has raised the dead. He has healed the sick. He has cast demons out of people. He has calmed seas. And they go, we want to see a sign. And it's like, hello, where have you guys been? That's all I've been doing. But the idea is we want to see some unmistakable, cataclysmic, celestial sign. The parallel verse is Matthew 16. Show us a sign from heaven that we might know. They want some messianic proof. So this is what Jesus says. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We call this typical predictive prophecy. That is, you won't find a statement of Jonah's predicting the resurrection. But what happened to Jonah forms a picture. It's a type. It's typical predictive prophecy. Jonah went into the sea and into the belly of the whale for a few days, but he came out. Jesus went into the heart of the earth, died, was put in the grave, but he came out. The fact that Jesus used this verse, by the way, shows that Jesus believed in the story of Jonah. If he's using this to refer to a future literal bodily resurrection... He believed in the history of it. So if Jesus believed in it, so should you. That sort of ends all the arguments, not the Rhinodon Typicus or the Catadon Macrocephalus. It's what Jesus said that sort of clinches the deal. Because if the story of Jonah is a lie, then Jesus is the biggest liar. He used it to refer to a historical event, his resurrection. By the way, the resurrection is the great separator The resurrection separates the men from the boys, so to speak. All other religions, all other beliefs, all other teachers from Jesus Christ. This is the singular event. Now, if you were to look at the life and birth of Jesus, that's unique in and of itself. I mean, think of when Jesus was born. He had angels surround him. Uh, He was born of a virgin. That's unique. I've never heard of anybody else pulling that off. He had wise men from the east following a sign to visit him at his birth. And then his life was unique. What he said, what he did, who he claimed to be. But what was most unique about him is his death. 
because it wasn't permanent. He died, was dead a day, another day, another day, and he got back up. So that the greatest news the world has ever heard came from a cemetery. He's alive. And you compare that with every other great, moral, wonderful, wise teacher, and there's a big difference. The tomb of Confucius occupied. The tomb of Buddha occupied. The tomb of Muhammad occupied. The tomb of Christ empty. It's the great separator. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. That great separator, the great anticipation of his resurrection. Finally, we come to the last point that I want to make on this, and I call this the Great Commission. The Great Commission. I've saved this for last because it's the most practical lesson. All the scientific stuff, it can be helpful if you're trying to witness to your unbelieving friends to show them this is documented. But the most practical lesson for you and I is this last one, the Great Commission. Now look back in verse 12 to get the impact. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. We pointed out last time, the best answer was not this answer. The best answer is, take me back to Joppa. I'm going to obey now. But he's saying, kill me, throw me overboard. Save your guys. Save yourselves. I'm going to die. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh and preach. However, God has other plans for him. He's already told them back in verse 1 and 2, go to Nineveh. Here's the message. He goes the other direction. God sends the wind. God sends the great fish. And now look in chapter 3. He's recommissioned. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Get this. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This is now post-whale. The negotiations have been successful. We read this and we think, you know, Jonah, it been a whole lot easier if the very first time you were commissioned, you just say, yes, sir. I'll go. I ain't going to mess with you. But he shirked the commission till finally he got back on target. He was corrected. And now he goes. You know, you and I have a commission. Very similar to that of Jonah. Just as Jonah was told to leave his place of comfort and go into all the world, go to Nineveh, Mark chapter 16 is our commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's our commission. Millions of Americans are conversions just waiting to happen. I don't know if you ever look at people that way, but they're conversions waiting, ready, many of them. And there are billions of people in the world that are conversions waiting to happen. Did you know that there have been 12 billion people that have ever lived on the earth? Over six million of, billion of them are alive right now. Over half of the entire world's population from history past till now are alive right now. Is that an opportunity? Billions of conversions waiting to happen? Jesus said, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. We have a sphere of influence. We have a plan. It's already laid out from God. Just go, talk, tell them, win them. 
Sometimes when the service ends, we leave out the east doors. Sometimes we'll leave out the west, pick up the kids. But sometimes you will leave out, some of you, out the very rear and go through the courtyard. I suggest at least one time you do that and look at what's inscribed above the archway. There's only one name in this place inscribed in stone. That's the name of Jesus. No man's name, Jesus' name. But what he said is put right in front of it. Go into all the world. We wanted that as the constant reminder as people leave church You're now entering your mission field. The salt is out of the salt shaker at this point. It's great to get together, but now we're to get into all the world and share the gospel. And you know, obeying the Great Commission is a sign of any fellowship, any church, that it's now mature. The sign of maturity is not its building, not the age of its members, not how many people sing in a choir. The mark of maturity is how seriously we take the Great Commission. It's as an analogy like this. It's like a young kid grows up, becomes a young man, and finally buckles down. He's been wanting toys all of his life, wanting to be pampered all of his life. Then he finally comes to his dad. He says, Dad, no messing around anymore. I take this seriously. I want to be part of it. I'm part of the family business. Let me in on it. And when the church or a local fellowship rises to the level of, God, I understand what you're about here. You have a global vision. You want to win people into your kingdom. I'm part of it. I want to be part of the family business. That's a mark of maturity. It's when people or churches refuse to be ingrown, refuse to come to church just for the lift, the encouragement, what they're going to get out of it, but what they're going to get so that they can give. That's maturity. Don't get me wrong. I love the lift that we get when we come to church. I love the encouragement that comes out of meeting like this. But did you know the church is the only society in the world that exists for the benefit of non-members? Someone once said, any church that does not evangelize will soon fossilize. Do you want to be a fossil? Would you grow up to be a fossil? I have all this spiritual stuff and it's just crusted on me. No, I want to be something living, alive, sharing. It has been estimated that if you were to take every unsaved person and line them up back to back, they would form a line that would go around the entire circumference of the globe 30 times. And the line is growing 20 miles longer every single day. So... Like that lady up the tree in Belleville, Illinois, are negotiations still underway with you? Are you like Jonah? Not there yet, but negotiations are underway. Or are you going to say, where do you want me to go, Lord? What do you want me to do? Neighbors, school, friends, business? How can I infiltrate my sphere of influence? J.C. Ryle, Bishop Ryle of Liverpool, wrote these words. The highest form of selfishness is when a man is content to go to heaven alone. The highest form of selfishness is when a man is content to go to heaven alone. Is there really a heaven? Do you really believe the theology of heaven and hell and eternal life? We can't be content to go alone. A little dog was lying on the side of the road. It was struck by a car, lying there. Another car drove by. It was a doctor in the car. Stopped, picked the dog up, brought it home, took it into its kitchen, examined it. It had been stunned but still alive. 
bandaged it up, treated the wounds, and was carrying it from the kitchen out to the garage when the dog suddenly sprung out of his arms and ran away. And the doctor thought, what a, what a selfish little dog. What an ungrateful little dog. Ah, let it go. Didn't think about it anymore till the next evening he heard a scratching at the door. And he opened it up, and it was the dog that he treated with another hurt dog. You know how many hurting units are out there? People's broken lives that are hurting from sin and from all sorts of stuff. We could never be content to go alone, but compel them to come with this commission. Let's pray. Father, one verse has yielded enormous treasure. We have seen not only that this is has possibilities in the natural world, scientifically, but we read that God prepared this creature, that you intervened, that either you suspended natural law or you simply used natural law providentially at the right time. And that even though Jonah suffered, it was to correct him, it was to hone, to take off the rough edges. And that this one event spoke of the great threshold of history, the greatest story ever told, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a fairy tale. But that we have a commission, Lord, a calling on our lives to be salt and light. Help us never to be content to just come and just to feel good because of songs and preaching. Help us never to be content to go to heaven alone. And Father, as we close this service, we just want to throw the net out here if perhaps some have come with their friends or relatives. And they know that though they have heard of God or they believe that there is a God, they have never really done anything about it. They've never made a choice. And Father, we pray for those who are in our midst today that you at this very hour, at this very moment, would draw them, tug at their hearts, bring them home, Bring them to yourself, to where they know their sins are forgiven, they have eternal life.